good to be with you all this morning. Uh, good to see you all again. It's been a while. And um, pray for you regularly as part of praying for our churches in this presbytery. So I'm going to have you turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, and as you're turning there, I'll just say one more thing Mark did not mention. Yes, we have seven grandchildren, one of whom is two weeks old. Uh, so we're going to see our seventh grandchild tomorrow. Um, unusual days in which we live, you can't just show up. Um, so yes, we're very happy with number seven, uh, but that's a very recent addition. So I'm going to read you Isaiah 6, uh, the entire chapter, verses 1 to 13, and we'll pray and then we'll look at scripture together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that this is your very word to us, that what I have just read is no more or less the word of God than the very word by which you created all things. And so we ask that your word would come as it must always come, with power and truth and clarity to cut and define and heal and redeem. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question this morning, a very simple question. What do you and I need right now? What do we need? Not, not what do we want, 
What do we need as you and I face daily life in the midst of some really big events? Uh, wasn't on my bucket list to live through a pandemic. But here we are, 2020, global pandemic. We have the drama of politics. We have the George Floyd murder. We have protests, we have riots, we have a fire in our own mountains. Lots of big events. What do you need in the midst of that? Then you have your own stories. You have your own pains and pleasures. You have your own fears of infection or love for loved ones who may have the infection, or a new birth, as we've had in our family, or fruitful service in the midst of this, or a loss of a job, or the provision of a job. All kinds of things. Big story, little story. What do you and I need in the midst of that? When I, when I ask that question, I think of a friend we had for many years. Um, I'm going to call her Mary. I was her pastor. Uh, Mary had as difficult a life as anyone I've ever known. She, by herself, had significant health problems, and usually by one in the afternoon was exhausted and couldn't continue to work. She was married to one of the most unkind, cruel men I've ever met, but he was unkind with his words and unkind with his lack of care, but he never struck her, never did her harm. He just drain the life out of her. He refused to work, and so she supported the family. That was her life, not for one year, ten years, but for over 20 years. She lived with an insoluble problem, and there were no how-to books on how to fix it. No advice brought her relief, just a prolonged life under personal suffering and circumstantial suffering. And she sought to walk with God in the midst of that as few I've ever known. She sought to be a faithful wife. She sought to forgive wrongs. She sought to walk in the light of God's word. She sought to live within her very limited income. And what I remember is every Sunday as I began to pastor that church, she would come by and greet me. And some Sunday she would look up and say, thanks, Mark, that's just what I needed. And as I got to know her circumstance, I became curious. And I finally asked her, what is it you need? And how am I helping you? She said, I need a great God and I need a great Savior. I need a great God I can trust in the midst of suffering, and I need a great Savior because I know how often I sin. And when you start tell, stop telling me about a great God and a great Savior, I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> and I've often thought of her since. I actually thought of her from that day on because that stuck in me. It was like a fish hook. Great God, great Savior. And I began to change my whole preaching ministry to serve people who need a great God and a great Savior, because they're the ones that came in week after week, burdened by their own sin, carrying the weight of affliction and suffering. And as I looked at Scripture, I thought, they're the ones that God came to bind up in Christ, to bind up their wounds. So if you ask me today what we all need in the midst of this 
global, national, personal storyline we're in the middle of is we need a great God and we need a great Savior. And that's why we're turning to Isaiah. Isaiah is a collection of the prophetic voice of Isaiah. Uh, He lived in a time of turmoil on the larger stage. Israel was surrounded by pagan nations that were becoming empires right on their border. And those empires were beginning to conquer and threaten Israel itself. Uh, Israel had been unfaithful to God, and God was sending judgment on his people. And to add to that, their most beloved and longest-term king in their history died. Fifty years they had enjoyed peace under the reign of Uzziah, and now he was gone. Instability in the nation, instability outside the nation, and Isaiah in that context has this vision. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the king who is holy, the king who redeems, and the king who sends here in this passage, because we need a great God and a great Savior. So let's just talk a little bit about the king who is holy. So the context of the passage is the loss of their great king, King Uzziah, an earth-shaking loss, and Isaiah has a vision that we've just read about. And in that vision, two things are very clear. Number one, God is king. He is on the throne. And number two, God is high and lifted up in verse one. The idea of being high and lifted up is he's transcendent. He's uncreated. He, if everything is dissolved, he remains the same. Verse 2 tells us he has servants in his kingly court. They're burning ones. I know you don't want to hear anything more about burning, but that's what's going on here. And those creatures are telling us by their wings that they are in the presence of God. They are angelic creatures without flaw. But in the presence of God, they must cover their eyes. He is so much greater than they are. Verse 3 shows you how otherworldly this vision is. The, the burning ones chant. They speak to one another. They, they speak of God as holy, 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 a threefold repetition. Now, you, you've probably been taught this, but just to remind you, in, in Hebrew, when you want to make a point, you repeat. It's an emphasis. So there's a place in the book of Genesis where it says someone fell into a pit pit. Well, that means a really deep pit. And there's another place in Scripture where it says this is gold, gold. Well, that, that means it's, it's valuable gold. Well, here you have holy, holy, holy. Not a repetition, but a threefold repetition, which means this is the superlative of superlatives. It's not just most holy. It is holy beyond anything you've ever known or encountered. So holy he is without blemish, without fault. So holy he is utterly uncreated. He is the Lord of hosts, all-powerful. And his glory fills not a little piece of real estate, but the whole earth. So how does creation respond in the presence of the true king? Well, it says it trembles, it shakes. And when you come into Scripture, you find that when when God shows up, mountains melt like wax. This is nothing. The, the, The fire today is nothing compared to what the mountains will do in the presence of God. The moon will appear to turn to blood. So that's the picture here. God... Is, is being described as a king who is holy. 
So what do we mean by a king? You all understand this. That means he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. It means, in the words of our confession, from all eternity by, and by the completely wise and holy purpose of his own will, God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatever happens. And then in providence, he directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. So in the big picture, that means not no nation rises or falls apart from God's will and purpose steering the vehicle of history. And on the micro level, it says no, no virus, no single strand of virus travels anywhere except at the will of God. R.C. Sproul used to say there are no rogue molecules in the universe. There are no rogue viruses, even though they are billions of a meter in size. (laughs) They go where God directs them to go. He declares the end from the beginning. He rules over the kingdoms of men. He rules over elections. He rules over supreme courts. He rules over Congress. He rules over governors. He rules over mayors. He rules over boards of county supervisors. All that they do is working out his purpose. Well, that changes perspective, doesn't it? I don't, I don't know about you, but every day I read the news and say, who is in charge here? The answer is God is in charge here. When things appear to be out of control, he is in complete control. He's not nervous, not anxious. Matter of fact, God is overflowing with joy today in his own absolute perfection and the complete perfection of his plan and purpose that he is working out in perfect wisdom in all of history. God is God is sovereign. So I don't need to live in fear. I, I, I don't need, Rondi and I have talked about how we, 65 years old, younger, much younger, um, <laughs> how, how we live in light of a threatening virus. And the phrase we use is, we're going to take precautions, but we're not going to live not to die. We're going to live to love and to serve. I'm not, I'm not letting a threat of sickness turn my whole life inward into self-protection. I don't need to. God is my protector. So I'll take my precautions and trust God with my life. To go about serving and loving as much as I can. Everybody's in a different place, what they can do. But I, but I don't need to be afraid, nor do I need to be foolish. <laughs> take my precautions, live to love, live to serve, not live not to die. Because that's not what God's called me to. So God is sovereign. God is exalted. He is high. He is holy. What does it mean he's high and holy? One, one of the ways to say that is if you, if you take the order of creation and you start with inanimate things like rocks and dirt, and you move up to living things like plants, and then you move up to insects and various forms of animals, and then you come to man... And then you you go to angelic creatures, and then you got nowhere to go. Because the gap between the highest angelic creature and the eternal God is infinite. That's what it means that he is holy. He's not the highest order of being. He's above all order of being. 
So I have a king who is holy, the king who rules, creates, upholds, and sustains all things according to his purpose. He is uncreated from everlasting to everlasting. He is the triune God, infinite in being and perfection, most free, most absolute. And I need to know that's who he is right now. Just because this, that's why what Isaiah needed to know that the great one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, a flawed man who transgressed a boundary and spent his latter years with leprosy, but a great king has died, and a, another great king, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire, is at the door, and Isaiah needs to know that God alone is great. There's a wonderful story out of French history about when I believe it was Louis XIV died. The Sun King, I think he's the one, it might have been the 14th or the 15th. And all of France thought, what are we going to do now that Louis has died? And there was a service in Notre Dame and the presiding priest got up and his opening word was, only God is great. Stunned everybody. That's what Isaiah hears here. Only God is great. In the midst of all the scandals, all the threats, all the virus, all the riots, only God is great. He is the sovereign king who is holy upon the throne. And what God does here is what we need. He He pulls back the curtain and shows us what is true that we don't see. The living God is on his throne reigning in perfect wisdom and justice, and everything is being accomplished according to his will. And I need that. I need, I need an anchor. I don't need a hug sometimes. I need, I need a sure place to stand when everything else is giving way. When everything else is shaking, I need to know the one who never shakes, who is unmoved. When everything else is corrupted, I was thinking about this this morning, when, when everything seems polluted and political and, and biased, God is uncorrupted. I may trust his word. He never spins anything. So I have an anchor. I have a place for truth. I have a place to go before the king who is holy that I can live by. So, Where do you go today? What do you need? I need to know that my God is the king who reigns. I need to know I have a great God that I can hold to. And that that God is the God I can go to with insoluble problems, if I can put it that way. You all know what that means. Insoluble problems are things you can't fix. One of the early things God brought into our marriage and Rondi will remember this, was um, challenges in the early months of our marriage that were a storm God brought us into that we could not escape. And we couldn't find any how-to books on how to fix it. And there was a day when we were driving and talking and trying to figure out how to fix this problem when I pulled off of the bookshelf that day and I brought it with us, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. 
And Rondi was reading to me about the greatness of God, and we both started to cry while I'm driving the car and she's sitting in the car because we realize we have a God great enough to trust with a problem we can't fix. I always tell people the best marriage book I've ever read is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And God has led us as his people and us as a nation into a storm bigger than we can fix. And he is leading us into a place of trust in him. And to point people to not the solutions that we come up with, but to the one who is the king, who reigns, who is holy, a great God. So that's the king who is holy. He's the one we need today, great God. Let's look at the king who redeems. Um, Isaiah sees in his vision in verses 5 to 7, the Lord of hosts seated on his throne. And, and I, always, I'm always, I always think of how Isaiah responds versus how we as a modern American might respond. We might see the Lord of hosts and say, oh, I'm, Lord, I'm really hurting right now, and I could use a little comfort. You know, that's our cultural context. Um, or we might say, Lord, I, I appreciate theology, but could you give me something practical to do? Or, Lord, I, I really, when I get in your presence, I just have such low self-esteem. Now, Isaiah doesn't see this the way our cultural, cultural eyes would. He's shaken to the core of his being. The building shakes. That's an earthquake. Isaiah has a God quake in his soul. He is, he is shaken. He pronounces judgment. That's what the word woe means. May I be damned, is what he's saying. Woe is me. I am under the judgment of God. I am undone. It means falling apart at the seams. Because when a mortal stands in the presence of the immortal eternal God, when a sinner stands in the presence of the threefold holy God, we are undone. And Isaiah falls at his feet as though dead. Or John later sees Jesus and falls at his feet as though dead. That's what happens all through Scripture. Isaiah sees his sin, and he sees the sin of all those around him. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He was a prophet. He made his living talking, declaring the word of God. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. I defile everything I say. And then he looks around and says, and everybody else is just like it. So, so what's, he, what's he doing here as he stands in, present, in the presence of the holy God who we're about to find out redeems? He's, he's comparing himself, not with other people. We all do that, right? There are always some people we look at and say, I just don't know how they could do the things they do. In other words, we look down on them a little. How could people do that? And then there are other people... We look at and we think, I'll never be as good as they are. So we're always busy comparing, either from a position of superiority or inferiority. Here Isaiah stands, and he compares himself not not to his neighbor Zechariah or Miriam, because he'd stand out pretty well against them. He was a prophet. He was a, he was a godly man. No, he compares himself to the living God, and he sees himself, perhaps for the first time in his life, for what he really is. A man of unclean lips. Now, in our, in our culture, um, 
We, we like to know ourselves. We have all kinds of tests. You know, you can take the Myers-Briggs and find out if you're an INTJ or an ESTP or whatever it may be. You can take the Enneagram. That's the new hip one, you know. I'm a number nine in the Enneagram. You can take the disc. You can take Strengths Finder. We think that helps us know ourselves. Isaiah says, you don't know anything about yourself. You want to know who you are? Listen, listen to Isaiah who says, I stood before God and I found out who I was. That's what Calvin says. We can only know ourselves in the presence of knowing God. Isaiah's undone. He sees himself as God sees him. He doesn't compare himself to others. He compares himself to the Holy One. And then he is surprised. I really think Isaiah was surprised because he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then God sends an angelic messenger to do what Isaiah would never have imagined. The king sends one of the seraphs to the altar to take a coal from the altar, a coal so hot he has to use tongs, and he brings it to Isaiah and he touches his lips. Ouch! So why an altar? This struck me when, when I was studying this passage. The altar was the place of sacrifice. That's where the animal was burned up as an offering to God. The animal parts were cut and laid on the altar as a payment for sin. That means this coal was stained with blood. This was the place the sacrifice had been made. The sacrifice had been consumed. God was satisfied. Isaiah is cleansed by a sacrifice that has been offered in a coal that had burned the sacrifice that was pleasing to God. So this is a picture of the mercy of God providing Isaiah with a means of cleansing that answered the righteousness of God. And so he sends this seraph with a coal from the altar where the sacrifice had been offered and touches Isaiah's lips and says, you are clean. It's very personal, isn't it? Immediate, specific, personal cleansing. It's, it's one thing, as we all know, to get sort of the general reminder of forgiveness, which we do in our liturgy. And I always say to people, don't, don't take that as a general statement. Take that as God pulling you aside, eye to eye with you, your father saying, you are cleansed. That's what he does to Isaiah. He cleanses him. For whatever guilt he's carrying, God knows us, looks at us, and says, the sacrifice is offered. You are now clean. That's what Isaiah experiences. The king who redeems, initiated by the king. Isaiah does have to see himself as God sees him so that he can experience forgiveness as God has provided it. He has to be unmade before the Holy One, that he might be remade by God's mercy. And of course, all of that points us to where that final sacrifice was offered, which is on the cross when God the Son became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I need that reminder. 
I need to be reminded that God is great, God is king, he's a holy king, and I need to be reminded that Jesus is savior, God is a redeemer, God is the God who rescues sinners from their sin and cleanses them from their sin, because you know what I find? I sin a lot. If anything, the, 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 the crisis has tempted me in new ways. And my wife's nodding her head. <laughs> well, that's not cause for despair. That's just reminders of why I needed a Savior. I need a great Savior that answers every way I sin now and through the rest of this year and the rest of my life. Because I sin in private ways that no one else sees or only my wife sees. I sin in more public ways and I need to know I have a great Savior whose sacrifice is big enough for someone even like me. That gives me hope. Well, that brings us to the last section, which in some ways is the the capstone, because this is about the God who sends, and I'm going to cover it pretty quickly. Because here what God does is commission Isaiah the prophet, now that he has experienced the cleansing grace of God, to go out and proclaim to people that their God is a holy king and a holy redeemer. He's going to be called to go out and say to people, here is your God, he is king, he is holy, and he redeems. And that's, that's exactly what Isaiah does. You might, you might know the words back earlier in Isaiah, not necessarily chronology, because the, the, the earlier words in Isaiah follow Isaiah's call, it would seem. But here's what, here's what God says through Isaiah. He looks at his people, he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. That's Isaiah's message, because Isaiah has tasted it himself. And I've thought a lot as I've, as I've followed a little bit how God's people have responded to the pandemic and the shutdown orders and all those kinds of things. And I, and I keep wondering... Shouldn't our only message in this time as God's people be, God is king, Jesus is savior, period. It doesn't look that way on Facebook, I can tell you that much. (laughs) I, I only have one message, that people may hear from me the message of Christ crucified. That's it. That's all I got to offer. They can sit around and wrangle about politics, all, that, all the hysteria that's out there. What they should hear from me as a Christian is, God is king, Jesus is savior. Because in 10,000 years, that's the only message that matters. Isaiah's given that message to the nation. And what's interesting is, is God tells Isaiah, this is not going to go well, Isaiah. I just want you to know, I'm sending you out to tell people things they don't want to listen to to see things they refuse to see. So it's going to be resisted, you're going to be hated, they're going to be stubborn, you're going to have hard hearts to face, you're going to be mocked, shamed. Some people say Isaiah was the prophet who was cut and torn, sawn in two, not like the magic show, but in real time. 
So Isaiah, I want you to know how great I am and how you need a savior. And I want you to know what a great God I am, what a great savior I am, so you can turn around and give that message to people who don't want to hear it. Now go do it. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) Well, how can Isaiah do all that? Because he now is resting and trusting a great God who is his king and a great savior who forgives even people like him. So he knows that no circumstance he faces will be outside of God's control. He knows that whatever evil is sent to him will be turned to good. He knows that the arms of God's grace are wide open even to the most resistant. And therefore all is well. So the question I started with, what do you and I need today? What do I need? What do you need? I need need to know I have a great God and be reminded of that. And I need to know I have a great Savior. What do people around us need? They need to know there is a great God. And there is a Savior, a great Savior, who welcomes any who come as they are. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being to us our great God, for bringing us to know and trust and taste of your goodness, to know your forgiveness through Christ. Lord, I pray that each of us today might be encouraged by how great you are and might be encouraged by how great your grace is to us through your Son. We need you as a great God and a great Savior. You are the King of those of us who are powerless and the Savior of sinners like us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.